So here's some exciting news. Our podcast, Creating Our Own Lives, Cool for Short, has just launched its second great season on humor as a tool for survival. On Being's Lily Percy is speaking with 15 different voices on the surprising ways humor shapes us and brings meaning to our lives. Insights from writers, comedians, political and financial reporters, a sex educator, and a rabbi, starring voices like Margaret Cho, Hari Kondabolu, Terry McMillan, Sam Sanders, and Lindy West. Find Cool on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite shows. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Enrique Martinez Celaya. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, and also for really making this possible. We've been we've been planning this and and plotting it for. I don't know. It feels like a year, right? Months and months and months. Um, and I want to thank President Corey also, who's somewhere here, for uh, welcoming us. And um, Nyla Osline, who is also a key organizer here at Biola, and Tessa Blumenberg at Enrique's studio. Um, I, I, I met with some faculty today and um, talked about how I run into really interesting people from Biola all over the place. Um, this is a, I, I very much value this place and its tradition of faith and intellect hand in hand. Um, I'm, and so I'm thrilled to be here tonight and thrilled to have Enrique with me as my conversation partner. And I want to just flag before we begin um, that it's always complicated to talk about visual, some, something visual, to talk about art. Um, but I don't see that as problematic with you because you are an artist and a philosopher. So um, I'm going to really draw you out as a philosopher, and we will explore your ideas and let that be an entry point to your art, rather than I think the other, you know, often you're interviewed as an artist and your philosophy comes out of that. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it may happen that you, we paint some verbal pictures if we, as we talk about, about your works of art. Um, so let's just plunge right in. Um, you were born in a small town in Cuba into so, the socialism there of the 1960s. And that's a really interesting time and place to be born. Um, also, that socialism was officially atheist. Um, I wonder how you would describe um, the religious and spiritual background of your childhood there. Um, Cuba was probably the least religious country in Latin America, even before the revolution. Yeah. And by 1964, when I was born, uh, there were no churches. Our churches were not really part of the, of the community. My parents sort of held on to their sort of Catholic God, even though it played very little role in, into our lives. And most of the Cubans I knew were into Santeria or Espiritismo, which were all the traditions. Right. And sort of the magic, um, the magic of, of that made the, the challenges of communism, the migration, and all of that more, more um, in some ways, more manageable. 
mm. for people. Mm. Mm -hmm. But but then after that, I went to Spain, which was a little different, and Puerto Rico. Right. And how old were you when you left Cuba? I was seven. Okay. I mean, so you were you were quite young, but it also is interesting for me to think about living in a time and place when revolution was a was an was a was a living idea. Um, I mean, do, do you think that imprinted you, um, even at that young age? Oh yeah, I mean definitely. I mean, this was a time that that the revolution was was there were some many problems that we were facing because of the shortage of many things. Yeah. But it's still the the idea that that this big change has happened around us. There was a certain utopian feeling floating in the society still. Yeah. Um, and it was hard not to get. Uh, touched by that as a kid, even though my parents themselves were against the revolution. But I'm, I was uh, intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was hugely aspirational. It was. Yeah. It was. Um, even for the little town we lived in, mm -hmm. it, I think many people still felt that things were possible. Right. Um, so, as Jonathan described in the introduction, um, you then grew up and seemed to be becoming a physicist. And what I've read is that you went on a five-day retreat in the winter of 1990 at Pigeon Point Lighthouse. And it was after that that you left physics for art. So tell us what happened there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a crisis. Um, <laughs> Did you know you were in crisis when you went there? Um, yeah. Uh, that, that, that's why. Um, so, um, you know, physics have been my life in many ways. I was interested in literature and painting since I was very young. Mm -hmm. But physics and mathematics were the most exciting things for me. And, I, and when I was a teenager, I had this sense that they were going to give me the answer to these questions. I always felt that I didn't understand enough about the world and physics. Mm -hmm. Did you like invent a laser as a, in Puerto Rico in high school? I did, I did. I, and I work in a, uh, at a research lab and then I, I built this laser and, and uh, it was very exciting. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, and I work in a nuclear accelerator, accelerator at Cornell, then I work at a place called Brookhaven. And I was really destined to do that for my life. But as I got older, when I got to Berkeley, I was painting all the time. And what mm -hmm. I wanted to do was paint. And it got to the point that uh, I really had that crisis. I felt like I had to make a choice. And it was really my first rebellion uh, ever. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to this lighthouse. I drove down from Berkeley to this lighthouse. and. Uh, Sconce myself in the little house there for five days, and and when I came out, I drove back to San Francisco, knowing I would be an artist, although I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what did you do with that insight? Then what came next? <laughs> did you? <laughs> it, was, it was it was much slower. It sounds more dramatic, but then after yeah. that, then it's the the real nuts and bolts of how to make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, so. I work as a scientist. I dropped out of the doctorate program. I was doing the doctorate and the MFA at Berkeley at the same time. I dropped out of both and worked as a scientist trying to build enough money to be able to do things, designing lasers. Mm -hmm. um, and then I moved to Oakland 
and sold my works in the parks in San Francisco, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was next. And that was a terrible time. A my, terrible time? Yeah, yeah. My, my parents were distraught. I was the oldest in the family. We have been immigrants, quite poor in Spain and so mm -hmm. on. And they, I have always done well in school, and their promise was that I was going to be a successful person. And here I was, having a crazy dream. And, <laughs> Although supporting your art habit by building lasers is <laughs> still more impressive than supporting your art habit by being a waiter or something. <laughs> yeah, it, it was odd to say to people like what I did sort of with my day job. Um, yeah. But it also took some credibility out of me being an artist. Um, mm -hmm. When I would say, well, I'm an artist, but I'm also a physicist. That it seemed always like it was a hobby um, right. in some ways. Right. So, but yeah, it was, it was, I felt, I felt like I have, for a while there, I felt like I have thrown away, my advisors at Berkeley thought I've thrown away everything I have worked for. Mm -hmm. So, so there was a, those days in Oakland were, were rough. It seems to me though that, um, that the scientist in you is very much alive in you, in your approach and philosophy of art, in the way you, and in your art, is that something that you are aware of? Yeah, you're right. I, it is. It is alive. Even though sometimes people don't realize it, I think that one of the most important ways in which it's alive is the treatment I have towards my studio. Mm. To approach it not as a factory has become very much the way of artists looking at the studios in the last 40 or 50 years, but rather as a laboratory, as a cross between laboratories and a monastery, that kind of hybrid place. And that's one way mm -hmm. that, I, that I learned from uh, my times on the labs. Also, the, inc the process of inquiry that I used for my work owes a lot to my training as a scientist. How, how's that? Um, When I take on a new project, rather than building up on, on the successes of the past or what I have done before or what my dealers expect, I go back to the holes of my process, mm. the things that I didn't understand well, and I go into those. Mm. And I find that that's a very uh, typical thing of scientists to do. Um, I also try to be rigorous and unfriendly towards my own biases and assumptions. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I think I also owe that to physics. My interest in philosophy, I think, comes from physics. And finally, and this is maybe the most important of all the reasons, I think the arts have become extremely apologetic to the sciences, partly because science, science has been so successful over the last 200 years. So I think in many, many of my experiences with academic art and art theory has been the, the tendency to want to be um, scientific mm -hmm. or pseudoscientific. And when I came to art, I came to art without apologies. And that gave me a great deal of freedom. Mm. You know, I think the same thing could be said of of theology as a discipline trying to justify itself in academic terms um, inside the academy. It doesn't have to do it at a place like this, but um, it's interesting. I'd never thought of 
of art, the arts that way. Um, I mean, here, here's something that someone else wrote about you um, that also, in another way, evoked this, um, the physicist to me and you. Um, for Martina Celaya, each work is an effort, and maybe you won't agree with how he's describing you. Um, for Martina Celaya, each work is an effort to discern a stability and clarity that lies beneath the murkiness of experience, an order or a structure that he calls truth, not art for art's sake, but an instrument for understanding in a world that is opaque and uncovering a deeper order that underlies what is obscured by the appearances of disorder. Seems to me that could also be describing physics or, again, even theology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that pursuit of truth and that inquiry um, sometimes at great expense um, joined, you know, all of those enterprises. Um, and I think sometimes what that's what makes it makes my work sort of to me, indistinguishable from pursuing it in philosophy or poetry. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it feels like an instance just to be doing it as painting, but tomorrow I can do it through writing or mm -hmm. some other pursuit. Um, there's even a way that you've described painting that evokes that for me, the, I mean, the craft of it, or the, even the, the way you understand what's going on. You talked about um, though we see, as an observer, we would see painting as something that is happening on a surface with materials. And you said, in an interesting painting, images fight back and their meanings play hide-and-go-seek with materials. As the, and their meanings play hide-and-go-seek with materials. That is such an interesting... I mean, that just... That is that image is going to change the way I look at any painting <laughs> from here on out. Um, well, I mean, I think, I think paintings are, are odd in the sense that it seems to us that everything that is important is on the surface right. and visible. Uh, unlike, say, science, we expect that we have to go in deep to understand what's really at play in an equation or something. Um, but that's very deceiving. I think paintings... Um, have a complexity, a relationship to presence and reference in the work of art, the tension between what seems to be and what is. Right. Well, and that is such a theme in physics now also that, um, that our senses simply you know, deceive us or are so limited in, in what we can discern of what's actually going on. Sure. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think that's... I mean, and that's what makes it so interesting. That's yeah. what I think establishes a connection between contemporary, at least physics from the last hundred years, and a lot of the most interesting things about um, the possibilities of our making as not a passive vessel in which to put some idea, but rather a very active um, process of engagement and experience. Mm -hmm. You know, this... this um this idea that Einstein had that, uh, or this, this, this dialogue and debate that goes on within science of whether, um, whether discoveries are, whether, whether something like E equals MC squared was invented or discovered, whether truth is invented or discovered. Do you, is that, is that um, 
an interesting analogy for you in terms of um, the work you do, your, your artwork, the ideas that come to you, the images that come to you. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. I, that's exactly how I, I see them. I think um, I feel, oddly enough, that I have relatively little role in my work in some manner. And I have ideas, for example, like I think all great paintings are the same in some manner. So if I look at a Velasquez or Leonardo, I find really that there are different embodiments of the same, pointing to the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that what the artist is doing is finding their own, their own way to clean some sort of glass in which to look somewhere. Mm-hmm. And each artist may have his or her own way to do that. Mm-hmm. But what is pointing towards is already, is, is, it already is in some manner. Um, which seems like a strange thing to say, but that's what I feel like is happening in the studio. I, I never feel like I can take credit for much of what I do. Hmm. Yeah, no, I've heard musicians talk this way. Like, actually, I'm thinking of Roseanne Cash, who said to me, it's like, she ca- it's like you catch songs. Like they're out there to catch. Um, and I, I was thinking of a minute ago how you said that you, when you start a new project, you go back to a question or a hole in what you had known, and you start there, and then I, I, you kind of hear you saying, then you, you discover what the next project is, or it's given to you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think of my work as an inquiry, and that inquiry, the goal of that inquiry is, is truth in some manner. So, so something that is an inquiry and has truth in it has a certain independence from the means um, um, that you use to get there. I mean, at the end of the day, right. the means sort of drop out um, if it's really an inquiry into some form of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's why I go back to these holes of the past rather than trying to build a practice on the successes of the past. I try to build a practice on the failures of the past, of the missing parts, um, to see if I can map out a clearer sense of where things are. Mm. What are you working on right now? Just like to put some, to, to tie these ideas to a specific project. So I'm working on a, on a body of work that opens next month in New York. Um, or is, I just finished it. And pointing to, uh, just before I did a show called Empires that looked at ambitions and illusions in some manner. And now I'm looking at the aftermath of that. What, what happens after those ambitions have been played out? So there's a sense of um, the discovery of the end of that journey. Mm. And um, there are only paintings. Usually I do other things as well, but these are only paintings. And, and they have as much to do about the nature of painting as they do about these other ideas, mm-hmm. which are, of course, in my indistinguishable from one another. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk about um, some, some passions and themes that run through your work and through your thinking and writing. Um, and actually, why don't we pick up on that one, the, the idea of empires. Um, you, you have this phrase, um, the dialectical friction between the domestic and the epic. I don't know if you did that in the con- if you said that in the context of empires. <laughs> I 
But, I mean, here's something you wrote. Um, that you wrote that despite you had an early interest in classic empires like Rome, the empires that matter most to me now are the smaller empires of day-to-day -day living, constructed by promises and shaped by our drive, our accomplishments, and our failures. These are big and small empires built around our hopes and around our scorns, empires of place as well as of memory, or today in the land and of tomorrow in the sea. Yeah. Um, um, I, I was going through a big transformation in my life when I took on this project of empires. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at, um, I, mean, I got into this big argument with a Dartmouth professor what empires are. Um, but my, my empires were this, this empires that I saw growing up, you know, sort of my mother's dressers or the dust on top of some book, or, and mm -hmm. these kinds of um, empires that one of the qualities they have is, is sort of failure built in, certain futility in the adventure of those, those ambitions. And that dialectic that you spoke about between the epic and the domestic, I, th I think artists are usually artists of the epic or artists of the domestic. But what I'm interested in is the friction between these two spheres, mm -hmm. the, the sort of domestic spheres of our everyday lives, children, families, are, are sort of a small goal, so to speak. And sort of these larger movements of time and history and God, these kinds of larger ideas. And the two of them rub against each other and that friction between the domestic and the epic is the source of a, a lot of my work. So, so, you know, the notion of someone like Alexander the Great, for instance, this sort of grand ambition and then dying in a very private death, mm -hmm. and a horrible one at that, mm -hmm. um, is very interesting to me. So, so what I am looking at is, what I'm interested in is always sort of the, the small, the small break-ins, the small fractures. It, it, um, at risk of, um, you know, stretching this too far, I feel like that friction is so much with us now. Um, what's happening um, out there on a grand level, uh, and I think national political level, but also globally, um, feels very relevant. It, 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 it feels epic. Um, and and it feels connected to our lives, and yet it's hard to get a handle on that or to know how to be working with it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's sometimes a tendency to, to, to speak in numbers, in terms of numbers or groups. Or, and and it, to me, everything always breaks down to the individual, individual suffering, um, individual failure. Um, the dreams and, and, and how does it play out for each person. Um, and no matter what group you belong to, I think that individuality of suffering and possibility and hope is, is the fundamental building block of human experience. Mm -hmm. 
And it is that, it is only to that that art can say anything. Art can say very little about groups or general mm -hmm. movements. Mm -hmm. That's left maybe for other fields like sociology. Um, so, so I have, I have tried to sort of make sure that my work stays in those areas that art can show or reveal something and not take it other places. Like art is a terrible way to do politics, for instance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think consciousness is, um, obviously it's, it's one of these epic things, but it runs, and it is, it is the theme of philosophy. Um, it, it's a, it's a special passion of yours, right? It's a it's something that you do, um, that you write about and think about, and it makes its way into your art. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think. I think it started when I was very young. I mean, it's a sense of um, my own sense of lack, of missing, always feeling like there was too much fullness to the world, and I understood so little of it. And sort of consciousness is at the center of that awareness. Mm -hmm. And sort of my preoccupation with consciousness, I think it starts in my lack of consciousness of what is around me. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, my whole entire interest of philosophy comes from my, my sense of being missing out on the fullness of reality. Does that evolve as you move through life? As you get older, as you raise children? Do you have any sense that you have more, you perceive more of the fullness of reality? Um, I would like to say yes, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think I can. Um, I mean, I know, I know more things, um, mm -hmm. but I also know that I know I, sort of as the boundary of my knowledge has has expanded, so has the horizon of what I don't know. Right. Uh, so the more I know, the more I know that I don't know. Yeah. So so it has been uh, tricky. And, and for example, having children, um, I feel like I know a lot less now than when I first had my yeah. kids. <laughs> so yeah, so my, my feeling is constantly one of deficit. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, have you been following, are you following the science, the, the kind of scientific pursuit of consciousness now that's emerging? Um, the neuro... Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, I, I feel like um, it's so much at the beginning. And I think, I think any, any even the top people in, in neuroscience would say that this is, we, we scarcely know how to approach consciousness itself, but it is interesting that at least the question is being asked, I think. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. It's, I mean, I think about it all the time in terms of uh, how, you know, machine, um, how, how the consciousness and computers and things like that will eventually evolve. I mean, at one moment, you know, these man-made objects develop consciousness. And what's the definition of that? So I'm very yeah. intrigued by that. You know, not to go too far because that, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but, but there is, um, there's a way to look at our works as consciousness. Our not, works too. 
as conscious rather than just be representatives or embodiments of mm -hmm. a consciousness of the producer. Mm -hmm. They themselves having some some consciousness against animated open engagement. Um, there's nothing intelligent I can say about it other than feeling that I have that this is the case. Um, and that that is being, that that perception of that consciousness is in the engagement of the person, of, of, of people with that artwork. Yeah, that there's somehow in that, in that interaction, that experiential engagement, something new, which is neither the, the artwork, not, not the um, viewer, the person engaging it, is but a third uh, thing that comes in is um, it's not just a in Donatello's David. It's not just Donatello's consciousness there. There's something else at play, mm. and which is, I think, indirectly related to the question of truth. So when you stand in front of the Donatello, something unfolds, and that unfolding is a, is an awareness that points to consciousness. Mm -hmm. And would that be the same with music, with all, with all the art forms? Um, maybe I don't know that much mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. other, other things, but tell but, yeah. me, tell me an example of you experiencing that with a piece of art. Um, you know, I one of the most obvious examples I think, and it happens to me every time I encounter any work by Van Gogh no matter where it is. I was at the Hermitage doing my project there and I went upstairs and I found a piece I had never seen reproduced or anything there. Mm -hmm. And the moment I see it, something happens. Some, they, there's an intelligence at play in the work itself and a sense of of something I can only describe as a consciousness in that work that engages, engages me, forces me to be a witness, forces me to be a conversation partner, um, <clears throat> places me in a very unstable place. And, and there's an instability in that exchange that, um, that is more simply than just looking at a bunch of marks and thinking about Vincent might have made him or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and this is a rare thing, I think, but I will, I would suggest that somewhere around that, one could construct a definition of what art is as opposed to an art activity. It's when something has the capacity to embody consciousness in a way that it can be unfolded. Over in, hundreds of years. Over hundreds of yeah. years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is what art is. Mm. And I think that's an interesting distinction, too. Um, that there's that there are works of art that convey that, and there. What did you say? Art activities, because yeah. every. I don't think you would say also either that every painting. Has that consciousness or conveys. Yeah, I mean, I think when you go to a museum and you look around, most works are forever trapped in their moment, in a way that they are completely historical, and something historical is hard to have consciousness. Really. Yeah. But yeah. then the great works of art are always ahistorical. This, regardless of the historical condition, they speak to you in the present. Right. And that presentness of the work of art 
is is what I am suggesting mm-hmm. brings about this this engagement with consciousness and mm. and those things are the work that mm. that somewhere around there is that I would try to construct the definition of what art is. That's so interesting to think about, and also you know one reason I feel wary of. Um, all of this kind of fantasizing and also catastrophizing about machines becoming conscious is that we have such a little minuscule grasp of our own consciousness, or even when you talk about this, of the consciousness that is embodied in works of art, um, we, we have no idea what that is. So how can we implant it in our machines now, however smart they are? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think even even ourselves. Um, I find myself that is is it's remarkably um, easy to to be unconscious through mm. a great deal of life, and then in an unconscious engagement, is it's hard to then make a big argument for consciousness. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think wakefulness and consciousness are somehow related. Yes. Another theme of yours that recurs is memory. Memory and displacement. And how, how would you describe what you mean by displacement? And um, I mean, I, I think there, there are different, different ways that I use that term displacement, but I think, I think in, it's a delocalizing, a, a sense of, of finding yourself in a different place, um, not just physically, but perhaps um, an altered state of, of awareness or, or a sense of have missed something out, some a near mist that somehow places you for where you thought you were. Um, And I think the relationship to memory, I'm I'm not so interested in memories, like my memories, but memory itself. Hmm. And and I think displacement carries in tow like the wake of memory um, of where you were. I wonder if you would read, uh, you told me that you don't like reading, <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. Um, um, this, this, was from, this is from this poetry and process. Maybe you can say a little bit about this volume. And then this, um, this poem that you wrote, it was not time or circumstance, um, from 2000. Um. I just realized I don't have my glasses. <laughs> you want me to read it? <laughs> Can you read it? Yeah. <laughs> Would you say a little bit about this book? Yeah. This, yeah. Um, so, so this was a book um, that, was, that was assembled around an exhibition called Poetry in Process. And it was, it was an interesting conversation between the, the creator and I about um, the idea of poetry. When people, when artists talk about poetry, and the work being influenced by poetry, they almost always mean the content of the work. The, the, the work, they're inspired by a poet, and then they make the work the, to have the imagery or whatever. 
I'm interested in, in poetry as a certain kind of foundation of truth, a certain workings of metaphor. And we're trying to look at that from the point of view of the very process um, of, of making work as suggestive of pointing to poetry. Okay, so here's this um, poem, which I think I saw it, because you, you have these notebooks that accompany some of your works and exhibits where you, and they get public, they're really fascinating if you have a chance to see them. Or you, you're, they're handwritten and it's basically your, the notes you take. It's basically yeah. a journal, right? A journal right. Of, the, of the process. So I, I saw this um, written in one of those notebooks with words crossed out and, and then here it appears all neat and tidy on the page. Um, it was not time or circumstance that displaced your memory it was concentration. Then the whole house filled with birds, flapping their wings, shaping the air into snowballs of sound, which they threw against corners long ago left to silence. The yard abandoned to weeds had the flowers of laughter, and the window flickered light over the porcelain fish, which for all time jumped from the dark crystal table. I'm totally fascinated by it was not time or circumstance that displaced your memory. It was concentration. And I have no idea what you're saying there. <laughs> so please explain. <laughs> um, I think that um, I find that sometimes in my experience of some people and some events, um, the only way to move past them, the only way to survive them in some manner, is with some sort of sometimes seemingly heroic effort, um, almost a practice of forgetfulness um, that you have to every day wake up again and forget them again and forget them again um, until that practice of forgetting them becomes sort of your everyday thing. Mm. And um, you know that that seemed like a love poem there that you read, but it was a, a poem to a moment of my childhood. Um, and, and yeah, it was effort. It was a hard moment. It, it, was, it was a hard moment, not because something happened to me, but yeah. because of the fullness of that moment mm -hmm. um, and, and those conditions and, um, and everything that the world around it, the world that the people around them, the feelings of those things, um, you know. It, it brings together... Um, a great deal of memories of um, of departure and so on, and mm. and who I was and who other people around, and then and required um, you know a, a sustained effort mm -hmm. to to not sink into into that place and never come back. Mm. And that's the thing with memories. That's the thing with certain circumstances that they are so vast that if you don't keep 
swimming against that current, it will, it will draw you back and you will never recover. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with artist, philosopher, Enrique Martinez Celaya. We're speaking in a live event at Biola University in La Mirada, California. So, um, another a phrase that comes up um, in, in your writing and in what people write about is this notion of hinge moments. And I think you just described that, standing before a Van Gogh painting. Um, and actually, I, I recently, I just, just in Minnesota a week ago, I met a Biola alum who talked about standing in front of one of your paintings and essentially, she didn't use the phrase hinge moments, but she said, I stood there and, and that changed me. I walked away and I was different. Um, and it seems to me that one of your projects that feels like it was important to you was your Berlin work, um, Schneebett, that you did for the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, writing about, well, would you just, I mean, it seemed, it was about Beethoven and his, Beethoven's deathbed, but it was about a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, that, that project came at a, at a, at a very important time, I think, for, for me, am I thinking about what, what art was about? I was, I was really thinking in a, in, as a total work of art rather than the individual pieces, rather a total collective and a total experience that involved everything I had to offer. Um, writings, <clears throat> assembling of structures, interacting with the public. In that case, the Berlin Philharmonic itself was involved. Um, they opened the season with Symphony <coughs> Number no. 9 um, from Beethoven and so on. So all that interaction, but it was also a reflection on, on the bed of death um, Heidegger's notion of the bed of death. The, the idea that the present is heightened by an awareness of, of the temporary quality of, of life. And I was looking at Beethoven in particular, which I read a lot about him, those, those last convalescent months and what, what, what they were from Beethoven and the things that he was trying to negotiate with the past, with his history, with his family. And he was, and he was deaf, right? He was losing his hearing. Yeah, yeah. Even I mean, as he was continuing to compose music, which is so incredible. It is, it is, it is incredible. And, uh, and that was very much a part, that, that was very much a part of the, what the work was about. That um, it, it was not just that he couldn't hear, it's that he heard ringing. So it's worse than, 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 than not hearing, so. Yeah. Right, and yet I, <clears throat> he wrote the late quartets in that state, right? Which are such. Um, I would say that the late quartets for me were hearing that that music at a at a really complicated time in my life was kind of a hinge moment. Um, yeah. Well, so so I'd read this passage of him writing music on on his on his white bed and how it was soaked with sweat. And that's what made me decide to do this frozen bed covering snow. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, it was a bed, a metal bed that through a refrigeration system became covered in snow. And it was a desolated bed. And I used the drawings that existed on a Beethoven bed to recreate it. And um, every time I looked at it, 
I thought of this passage from Maynard Solomon's about um, Beethoven's, Beethoven's sweat-soaked bed. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting, too, when you write about that period of Berlin. So that's mid-'90s Berlin. Um, uh, and I spent my 20, a lot of my 20s in a very different Berlin before the wall came down. Um, this was a period before the... So Germany had been reunited, but it was a period before the, gov the Bonn government relocated to Berlin. There were still bullet holes in a lot of those buildings in East Berlin, which was true when I was there as well. They'd just never been repaired. So the past was just physically alive. Um, and you wrote um, that this project considered the end of it, or that you know you were in the midst of the end of an epoch and the consequences of displacement. Um, that Berlin at that time suggested a mood, a way of being which I had not understood before and still do not understand well. I wondered if you'd say some more about that because that feels like it was bigger also than that time, that place and time. Um, I mean, I think, I think Berlin in, at that time had this sense of collective memory. It was just a whole city held together um, in the windows. When you look up to those windows, um, you still feel that you can see um, that past in those windows. Um, everywhere I turned, I felt that it was there. And in, in, through that collective memory and through the I went there armed with sort of the poetry of Paul Salan and um, Henry Kine and people like that. So in many ways, it was my own exploration of my exile. Strangely enough, going mm. to Germany to find it. Um, but it was, it was through that, to all those desolated houses of Berlin. Um, at that time, really, it was, you felt that you were walking through a past Yes. That was still half animated, in some manner. And um, did it take you back to that uh, 1960s socialist Cuba, in that sense? Oh yeah, it, it did. Yeah. It did, and uh, it did in a way that, by being unencumbered by my own specific history, I could see it with some distance. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very grateful for it. But 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 that's why Berlin was so important to me at that time. Um, and, I, and also what was happening to Germany as a whole was, was very informative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I have to say it was, that language is very resonant for me. I mean, you know, I keep coming back to this now, wherever I am, wherever I feel like we're living in this big moment of public life. And... Um, you know, the end of epochs, the beginning of something that you can't quite understand, the consequences of displacement. That's very resonant language for this moment in the 21st century, I feel. Um, I don't know, do you think of it? And I feel like, as you say, you're, the places you've come from, the places you've been, also you, you have a certain perspective on that that can be useful. I mean, I, I, one, of the, one of the consequences of being in exile um, is that in some ways um, you gain the world in many ways. And in gaining the world, um, whether it's I can find in Dostoevsky or I can find in Paul Salan or 
in Harry Martinson some some pointer to um, that sense of displacement. You know, Martinson's case, trying to um, to find a mother who left, and and you see, you know, in Paul Salan sort of mining through sort of all that German history, or um, you know, Dostoevsky sort of in his own um, struggle with with uh, life itself. I think in many ways. I feel that the freedom that comes with being an exile is, the, is to take all these different ways of looking at these problems of displacement and loss and then incorporate it as my own mm-hmm. and without necessarily trying to tie it up to specifically the Cuban exile experience. Um, but I do, I do feel that there, this is a moment in which the conversation has been narrowed to, to sort of create this sort of simplistic opposition between locals and, and the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's more complicated than that. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is to find the strangeness the, in each of us. The, the strangeness. Sort of, the strangeness, the yes. sense of otherness. Yes. Um, in us. I mean, I think that we all carry a burden of otherness, mm-hmm. Of, mm. of not being a local, so to speak. And I think getting in touch with that will make this simplistic opposition um, disappear somewhat, mm-hmm. or completely, if we look at it closely enough. Mm. Um, one thing you said about when you moved to Puerto Rico. Is that where you went when you left Cuba when you were seven? I went to Spain. You went to Spain, yeah, and then in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, you were there as a teenager. You said, uh, unlike Cuba of the 1960s, which had this aspiration of an envisioned future, Puerto Rico, you said, was not a place that had an envisioned future. It was a sen- you had a sense of waning. And, and then you said something interesting, that because faith in the system had withered, subjectivity thrived. That's such an interesting observation. Um, I mean, it was so. Um, it, it was. It was. It, it was and remains um, a place that do, didn't have um, the belief in in the laws uh, as maybe Americans used to think of them. Um, and and I think everybody had their own sense that their own view, their own opinion, their own, their own version of the truth mm-hmm. somehow should prevail. And then the question is, is that subjectivity? I mean, I think that... That sounds kind of familiar, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's becoming increasingly familiar, I think, um, around the world. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the sense, you know, I think the subjective is... is when deeply, um, deeply accepted as a, as, a, as a burden, as a responsibility, can lead to truth. And in fact, perhaps it's, a, it's really the only way to truth. But it's also a way um, to, to locate differences, to feel that from that subjective point of view, um, difference, difference between people, difference between ourselves and others, um, become sort of the defining 
factor of what we call the subjective. Right. Um, and I think some of that, it was what I saw as a teenager. Um, and some of that is what I see now. Mm-hmm. You, you've also said that, you've also spoken of the, the age of narcissism that began in the 1960s. Um, I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about that. And do you feel that what, where we are now is also, um, has also been engendered by that narcissism? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it has become very sort of commonplace to speak of the 60s and 70s as sort of an age of narcissism. Mm-hmm. But if that was the birth of it, we are living in the fully entrenched maturity of it. Yeah. Um, so they would have only been magnified by social media, by all these other methods of, um, uh, you know, one, one central quality of narcissism is not this notion of loving oneself but the incapacity to love, which is at the heart of narcissism. Right. Um, and that incapacity to love is, is, is really an ailment that one can feel around. Um, which steals away the capacity for empathy um, and relating to someone else as something other than a subject or an opposition, hmm. oppositional force. So I think that the, what has happened in the last 15 years where we do not exist unless there is a camera looking at us, mm-hmm. the, the, the growth of reality television the, the sense that you see people see a bird, they want to photograph it before seeing it. That sort of mediation of, um, of media has only exacerbated mm-hmm. the sense of narcissism that exists in the culture. And, and the end result is, is um, not only the capacity for love, but cruelty. And cruelty has become really something that one sees and hears a lot more about in many different ways. Sometimes in a subtle way, or let's call it apparently harmless, such as certain kinds of jokes, certain kind of comedy, and in other ways that are more terrifying. Um, And I think that is an outcome of this growth of narcissism. Mm -hmm. And And... and let me just add to that, the our world is, is not an oppositional force to this, but rather very much at the center of this narcissism. Right. I mean, you, for you, art is ethical, um, but it's not necessarily ethical. Right. And you're well, right. I mean, art, art the, as you say, the art world can also be... Um, an uh, especially interesting, colorful expression of this narcissism. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the thing about the arts is that you cannot really use any kind of generalized, pluralistic view of it. Right. When people say they like the arts, it's like people say they like religions. It's somewhat meaningless. Right. Um, so I, I think that... Um, that there are most of the things that people engage with is some art activity which is increasingly connected to commerce and trade and auctions and so on. Um, so I'm not so interested in that version of it. I'm interested in art as sort of connected to ethics uh, as an ethical activity. And um, 
And in, and in that sense, I think one of the reasons to do that is because this narcissism we speak of, we, we, we all have it. My, I have it. I mean, this is part of a condition. Um, and, I, and I think what art can offer is the possibility of seeing oneself reflected in the work in this way and then work towards the possibility of imagining something beyond that, mm -hmm. beyond that narcissistic concern with the image. I, I'd love to talk about um, religion and the term religious, how, what that means for you. And I, I think actually where we are, it flows right into that. Um, I mean, I see, the way you use the term religious, I see it um, connected to connotations of consciousness, also of an awareness of moral failings, of emotional ambition and seriousness. Um, what, I, and, I, and I don't um, have a sense, you, it's, this is not something that you overtly speak about or reckon with. Um, so, I mean, just talk to us a bit about what religion means for you, both for you and also how you see it um, alive in the world and connected to these subjects we've been discussing tonight. So the religion of my, of my childhood, um, I, I had a contention relationship to that religion of my childhood. But even though I had a contentious relationship with it, it mattered to me. You know, you're not, you're not content with things that don't matter to you. So I wrote all these essays, you know, um, on, the, on the nature of God, all this, I mean, they were terrible. They were like, I was 13 or so, but, but, but they, yeah. um, I was after something. Um, and then I saw it through my life and um, in many different ways. And when I, I want, are to do what religion does for my parents mm. and for people who are believers. Um, a certain inquiry into truth, a certain clarifying force in one's life, a certain guide. Um, and that's how I have approached it. And, and, and that's why I sometimes react when, when people ask me what the work is about. I mean, nobody asks what religious experience is about. Right. They just, if they ask something, it's how does it come about? And, and I think, um, I find sort of like Wittgenstein that even though I'm myself not religious, I look at life from a religious point of view. Mm. With the, that the questions that people usually address in religion are the ones I want to think about and talk about, not only in my work, but, but in my work. Mm. Yeah, I was, what was it? Um, looking back at my notes here. Um, see if you were listening to this on the radio, you wouldn't see this. <laughs> um, oh, you know, when we were talking earlier on about your idea of a painting that... Um, their meanings, images fight back and their meanings play hide and go seek with materials. It seems to me that 
it's kind of a way to move through the world, also seeing meaning that is playing hide-and-seek with materials. Yeah. I mean, did you say you, that's you as an artist, but it's also, um, as you just said, it also describes a religious way of moving through the world. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, uh, and there is a, there's a secret in all things. Um, and that secret that is in everything, in, you know, in my shoe and everything there is, um, I think makes life and reality and the moment so full, so vast, that only the kinds of attitudes that people describe as a sort of religious attitudes have the possibility of of approaching that fullness mm-hmm. um, with any kind of sincerity and with any kind of um, possibility of getting anywhere. Um, yeah. There are some, you, you sometimes say that artists should be prophets, and then you often qualify it in saying minor prophets at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like the way you you define that because you don't define it as being mystical. Um, you say you said you wrote an you actually did a lecture in two thousand nine called the Prophet and you drew on Pushkin and Khalil Gibran and you wrote the Prophet is not a martyr or mystic who seeks transcendence, but one who turns humbly and curiously towards the world. I mean, I think there is a tendency. Um, in, in, not just in our moment. I mean, Kierkegaard made the distinction between the apostle and the genius, you know, 170 years ago. But, but there's a tendency f- for us to think that to, to be a prophet or to do anything grand, you have to have a special gift, um, be someone called for. And I think ultimately what really matters is the resolve to want to do it, to give your life to, to that which you consider important. And, and if you have no skills to offer or nothing special to offer, it's all the more amazing that you do it, the more remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I think that resolve is all that really matters. And, and in a specific case of art, I think the notion that to bring the future forward by throwing yourself desperately. I think desperation is, is part of what I consider a prophet to have. Mm-hmm. Once you have made that resolve to launch yourself forward, then desperation is the only, the only factor, urgency, desperation. There's no, um, no way to like calculate. Calculation doesn't go with prophets. Um, so, so, so the, he has very little, um, very little else that is required, and and I'm not, and the reason I made the distinction between minor prophet is because I'm not trying to put any capital letters here or trying to say that you're going to be remembered as such, mm-hmm. because it really doesn't matter. It's a private, it's a private journey that no one needs to really know about. Mm. 
there's um you you use the word whisper a lot. Do you know that? In your I, writing? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> the whisper of the order of things. Again, like the order and then mm. you, you said somewhere the whisper is faint, but the best art helps us to hear it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I use whisper is because maybe, maybe I, have, I have little ears. Um, but it, seem, it seems that both in science and art and anything, in anything, um, the truth are not screaming that much. Um, and I think that you have to be attentive, silent enough, be able to look and listen very, very carefully, and, if, and, it, and even then, you have to be very lucky to hear something. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you do hear something, um, it's transformative. And that order of things, that, that, that more stable reality underneath the appearance that we, mm. of things, um, is, um, is life-changing. So, and I think scientists will will say that's the case, and, and I think poets, and I think theologists, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think everybody agrees that truth is, um, requires some, some suppressing of other things to see it. Hmm. It's, it's interesting to ponder that um, now, right now, where truth itself is such a kind of fraught concept. Um, and also because we're all so trained to be, really to be noisy, right? To raise our voices and to think of truth, real truth, as something that we'll be whispering. And so that part of the way we have to let it into the world or attend to it is to be more quiet, more gentle. Yeah, I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lend itself naturally to... Um, to many of, of, of what we hear in the culture as a whole, um, where authority, titles, how light you scream, how important you seem to be, um, is given too much credence. Uh, I mean, going back to what I said before, the notion that um, the popularity of, of your site, or the popularity of your Instagram account, somehow determines um, the wisdom of your words or something. And, and I think we are challenged, um, and, the, and especially, I would say, even more so, the younger, my kids are challenged by all this, yeah. all these demands, to the point that to, to even talk about something that exists underneath all that, like, like a rustle of leaves or something mm-hmm. underneath that whole scandal. Or the whisper of the order of things. Or the whisper of the <laughs> order of things. Yeah. That, that is, um, is something that not only sounds foreign, but the kind of concentration and, and also the kind of giving up of many of the things we hold dear and we have been taught to love and, and demand and wish for and crave um, is, um, 
it's a tall order. And I think most people don't think that the whisper of the order of things is that desirable, that they're willing to give up so many things for it. Mm-hmm. It's nice to talk about that in this space, isn't it? In this contemplative space. It makes sense here in a way that it would be hard to make sense in a lot of our public spaces. Um, this is something kind of completely different, but we just have a few more minutes, and I, I do want to ask you about this. You, um, and I, I don't really know the story here, but it sounds like you moved, um, you, the strengths and pitfalls of color is the topic. Um, it sounds like you, you moved, you've kind of moved away from and towards color in your life. And then you kind of moved away from color and re-embraced it after the birth of your children in a new way? Yeah, I mean, I, I started as an apprentice for a painter, very sort of traditional paintings. And in the late 80s, I destroyed all my paintings. I burned them, and I felt that, um, I, you know, physically, like actually burned them. I felt like I had to build painting from the ground up. And I think eliminating color I eliminated out of my painting anything that anybody have ever said that I was good at. So if I was good at drawing, I took it out. If I was told I was, you know, had facility with color, I took it out. And then I said, well, if I give up all these things, what is painting for me? Um, so I'm very interested in the, in the idea of being anti-facile in some ways, rejecting, rejecting what comes naturally, or rejecting mm. pleasure. Mm. So... So then I, I worked in black paintings for a long time, um, although black is so seductive that in itself is a problem. Right. Um, so um, so, so it's, it's, a, it's too easy to be fetishistic about the rejection itself. Right. So, so I was fortunate to have children. And, um, and when they came, along with them, it came the reinvention of a new way of working to make sure that I was not getting too, too comfortable in that other way. And then with them, it came, came color over tar paintings, of all things. And um, it's still muted. I cannot make it a big triumphant return to color because it is relatively muted still. Yeah. But, um, but it is there. I was, uh, was thinking when I read that, um, uh, I interviewed um, a few years ago a physicist Arthur Zients, who's worked a lot with Goethe, who we think of as a poet, but in fact really thought of himself more as a scientist, and that he, he that Goethe defined uh, colors as the deeds and sufferings of light. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, all, all, all colors. I mean, really, all colors are just basically. I mean, light is 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 the same. It's the same thing, whether it's a red or a green. Just slight shifts will make one into the other, yeah. depending on how you move in speed and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, colors, uh, my kids are very interested in color, and they ask me all the time about them, and they cannot believe that I think brown is a nice color, for example. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> this is why we have children. Yeah. They set us straight. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but I think, I think the there's an emotional relationship um, that colors can bring about, and um, and paintings are in, intricately connected to to the notion of not absolute color but local color, colors in relationship with one another. Mm. 
Um, and I find this to be um, a profound part of the encounter of, with paintings. And the colors of paintings are always insignificant or relatively lame compared to nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, it is, you know, a lot of the great things of, of, of paintings is the constraint, the limitations. I mean, that's what makes them a creative enterprise. It's the constraints. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about art as freedom when in fact it is the constraints that allow the possibility of art to, to happen. And color constraint under the pressures of, of these relatively small dimensions is, um, is beauty under compression, which is always, is always an, an exuberant form of beauty. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you about beauty. I wanted to... Um... I don't actually think it's a word you use a lot, and maybe you use it sparingly on purpose. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't. I, the problem is beauty is that we all have an opinion of what it is, yeah. right? And it's a yeah. word that is commonly used. Um, nobody necessarily goes back to sort of Immanuel Kant's idea of beauty when you use it. So people, when when one says it, the other person says, "Oh, I know what you mean." Right. So. So I try to use other words around that are maybe less familiar. The same, the same challenges with the word spiritual, because I think everybody thinks that they know what that means. Um, and and then, so I use what I mean, the, the broken parts of it, and then let don't say the summary word. I think the problem with beauty, spiritual, and so on, is that they're summary words that summarize yeah. a certain kind of experience. Um, but I think, um, you know, but I, but I am thinking about some of these questions. Mm-hmm. What are, so what are some of the words you use um, instead of beauty or spiritual to convey what those things mean to you? Um, I, I do things like the whisper of the order of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I, I you know I talk of experience and I talk of transformation um, and and I and I purposely try to shock um, by saying by using words like clumsy and awkward and raw and things like that that don't immediately that forces you to think a little bit more of what of what is being said right because if I say you know this painting is very clumsy you immediately uh, think that I am saying something negative about it. Um, so, and I never use word like things like pe- somebody will say, oh, that painting is very static. A static painting can be very beautiful. It's not in itself a criticism. So I try to, to, to clean these words from their usual association by adding other words to it. But so if you said something was clumsy, and would that be... And you might think it's beautiful, but you would, it would be a way to have people look at it, to pay attention? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is, a, there is a awkwardness and clumsiness is a way to, to get at something authentic sometimes when slickness and facility are not the way. You have to go around them. Right. So, so when, when I will describe one of my paintings as awkward or clumsy, um, self-aware in that sense 
I think I, I want people to sort of look at it and say, why will anybody want to do that? And then in that, in that dialogue, there's the possibility of maybe some connection mm -hmm. with something. Mm. Um, you know, like I, I, I never want to have the kind of artwork that winks at someone that sort of we're both in on the joke. I find that kind of artwork to be, um, to be lacking in some mm. ways. Mm. So when I say this is clumsy, I don't, mean, I don't mean that I was trying to be cute by creating some artifice, but rather that this is the only way through something. Mm. Um, and sometimes I, will, I would not be saying it by meaning like, I could do it better if I wanted to, which is the other thing. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying this is where I am, and I, I can go any farther. This is as good as it gets. And what about and what about um, spiritual? What are some other what's some other language or other imagery that you use? I so agree with you that that word is overused, and yet it's so meaning. It's pointing at something so meaningful. Yeah, that that is one of the most challenging of all the words. So, um, so. I have found sometimes to use the word spirit with uh, the spiritual yeah. part to actually help a little bit to get somewhere. Um, but I, what, I, what I try to do is, is speak of, of the actual end goal of what we describe as the spiritual. So when we say I'm having a spiritual experience, that's, that doesn't say anything to me. So, so I try to say, well, what do I mean by that? What is happening to me? What is happening to what I'm engaging? And what kind of transformation is at play? And I try to describe those things. Mm -hmm. And I think if I do that, I'm, what I'm thinking is that you might take away what normally would be described as a spiritual experience without having that, with, with having something concrete about what actually occurred. Um, you know, it may be something as simple as, as a certain relationship with, with one of my kids right. or a certain experience of, of with nature or, or with some larger order. And, um, and I try to say what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. I find that language language can be a great as, of great assistance in mediating experience, but also can be a, a way to hide and to obfuscate and to confuse experience. Mm. Um, and I think learn language. La language that is, seems very informed is the most dangerous. Mm -hmm where we assume that too much is conveyed by those words. Yeah, and, and, and I, think, I think the transaction is dead. You, I say it, you think you know what I mean, yeah. and we're done. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's too much of a shorthand. Between summary and shorthand, mm -hmm. the entire communication is, um, is dead. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, this is an, a final detour, but it, you have such an interesting view of, um, and you wrote about this, about photography, and you wrote about this a lot in your Berlin 
experience. And it strikes me because now, and like for people in this generation and our children, photography is something, it's a momentary activity. It's almost synonymous with seeing, taking a picture. Um, and you talked about, here <laughs> whispers again, photographs whisper that to look at them is to lose or overhear something, that the chemistry of photography holds grief as a potential. I just think this is so interesting to think about memory and mourning, um, that there's so much going on in pictures, so much more than we, so much more meaning than we attribute now. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that when people look, say, at a portrait of somebody, we always think that what, what we're saying is that person is no longer. But in fact, what's, what's really happening is that that image is saying, you're not to me. You're, that, it's, it's the other way. It's, it's us that do not exist for that photograph. Oh. And as such, <laughs> and as such, there is a grief, a mourning of the loss of um, always built into a photograph. Oh, on my painting table, I have a photograph of Robert Frost with his son Carol. And Carol, many years after that photograph, Carol, in the photograph, Carol is maybe 13. Many years later, Carol committed suicide. There, and I have that photograph with two, ap two apples from, from Robert Frost's orchard on my painting table. And I look at it every day. And I think that photograph knew everything that was to come, sort of in the leaning of, of Carol towards his father, um, father, and in the fence, in all of that. The future was there. And, and I look at it every day to figure out if I can catch it, in which part of it. So then, three inches away, I have a picture of my son and I. Um, it's still unfolding. Mm. And I'm trying to understand how that photograph, who tells me that I don't exist for it, is holding sort of all that will be in this place. And I think uh, that's what photographs can do mm. in some ways. And, and like many other things, by taking so many photographs, by having it in our phones, um, we, we don't look at them carefully enough. Mm -hmm. So, and in fact, they have become sort of a testament of having lived when in fact what photographs do is say you're no longer. So. This is too deep for <laughs> 9 p.m. <laughs> so a simple, actually a ridiculous question to end, but um, the question is really how you would start answering this question of through the life you've lived and the work you do, the way you walk through the world as a scientist slash artist slash philosopher, how do you... Um, how would you start to answer the question how you think now about what it means to be human, how your sense of that has evolved to this, at this point? I, I think 
the thing that is most pressing that comes up when you say, when you ask that question, is, um, is compassion. I think, not because it comes naturally, but because I think in some ways, because it doesn't, to me. And, um, and I find that at this age with four kids and with a world that um, everywhere one turns, and not just in the news, in, in just about every encounter with every, every person is carrying something. And, um, and I think what, what I'm reminded constantly is to be human, is to be aware of that. And, and that compassion is maybe the, the defining quality of what means to be human for me at this point in my life, more than intelligence, more than anything else. Um, and it's increasingly, increasingly urgent and increasingly hard to remember that. Mm. I, like, I like how you describe it also, not as a quality, but as a work in progress. Yeah, it it is a work in progress. It's, um, this morning, I I was seeing uh, a man eating from a garbage can in halfway between Brentwood and Bel Air, mm. two expensive neighborhoods of LA, and everybody you know driving by and so on. And and, um, and I was thinking, what will it take for somebody to stop and do something about it? But nobody did, and I didn't. And I think that our familiarity with those images and our capacity to survive them, to move on, is, is remarkable to me. Um, and it seems to me that that's what is most needed. And what, when you ask me that question, what I think about means to be human now. Mm-hmm. Do you? Do you consider yourself to be a, um, a hopeful person? Is hope a word you use? Um, I don't. I don't. I, I think hope. Hope is in some ways sort of a, a heroic human quality, especially in light of what of what life sometimes brings. Mm-hmm. But perhaps it's the best thing we have to. Um, to sort of have the heroism of waking up in the morning, brushing our teeth and, and saying, you know, that something will be possible. Um, that being said, I don't describe myself as hopeful. I think, um, I think hope is, a, is another of those works in progress. You know, and, and some, for some people, um, it seems amazing that they can sustain hope against atrocities and you know, oppression and so many horrible things. But it's also amazing when people are hopeful when they have a menial job they hate or, or a terrible family life and then somehow still have this, this remarkable 
human capacity to still think that tomorrow will be better. And, my, and in some ways, that's what I try to take on empires. They create the idea that, that the future will be better as today. There's a certain wonderful thing, and also a terrifying thing, a denial of the present that comes with hope. Um, and sometimes that, that's the only thing we have. But I, uh, I turn that one around constantly in my head. Mm. Well, Enrique Martinez-Salaya, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>